The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. You know, every once in a while when uh, you get the opportunity to share God's Word and preach up here, you're given a subject that uh, almost uh, defies being able to be contained within the, the time you have. And so uh, that being said, don't be too worried. I'm going to get you out of here. But it is uh, one of those subjects that really goes in a lot of different ways. And this morning, we're just going to focus, if we can, uh, on what the Word of God has to say about a very important subject to us, and that is the subject, the doctrine of hell. Last week, uh, Pastor Doug got us started off uh, in the right direction in talking about eternity. And we laid out some truths from last week that we want to carry forward to this week, such as that we are the creation of God. God is the creator. We are the createes. Uh, it is his universe to do with as he chooses and as he wishes. He sets up the rules, and uh, it's up to us to respond to them. Uh, also, another truth would be that life is precious to God. Uh, he loves us. Uh, he created us for a reason. We're not a, an accident or a chance. Uh, we're here with direction. And then a final choice of that, or a point of that is that uh, we're created for all eternity. Uh, it's not just this life that we're living, but that after we die, there is something else. And so the question is, what is that something else? And today we're going to look at one of those two options according to the Word of God, and that is hell. Now, when you think about hell, and we think about it probably more than we realize because our culture is saturated with the idea of hell. We uh, see movies, we see TV shows, we have uh, images and art and sculpture and so forth that constantly are bringing upon into our consciousness the idea that the possibility that there might be hell. And yet, we don't like that. We want to resist that concept. It's not, you know, something that we really like thinking about, even as Christians. It is uh, sometimes considered to be an objectionable doctrine. Uh, and people usually object to hell upon a couple different uh, reasons, uh, such as it goes against their concept of God the Creator. Why would an all-loving God, uh, a good God, why would he create a place of eternal suffering? Uh, why would he create beings that are subject to the danger of hell? That doesn't make any sense to me. We might object to this concept of hell based upon our understanding of what the Bible is, the Word of God. And we can't deny that all the way through this book, the concept of hell is taught. It's in there. Uh, we can't deny that. And yet some would say, well, I don't believe that the Bible, the way that we have it today, is the way it was originally written. There is some corruption that has happened. Uh, later redactors brought back into that and put literally words into Jesus' mouth. Another reason we do that, and this is a much more personal reason for most of us, is that simply it's unbearable to us. The thought that we might go to hell, that those that we love and care about might be going to hell or have already gone to hell. It's just, it's just hard for us to conceive of it. This morning, out of all the ways that we could approach this subject, and there are many, many ways, and by the way, there's a card in your bulletin in which I hope that you'll take opportunities to fill out, uh, just basically write down some questions, and at a future date, we're going to try to answer some of those. But as we go through this this morning, uh, we're going to narrow our focus. Um, as I was working on this particular uh, sermon, 
I, I looked at it from several different perspectives, uh, one of them being a, a rather dealing with some of the topics, uh, the philosophical topics of this issue. We could get into, you know, aggressive foreknowledge or middle knowledge, Molinism. We could talk about free choice and all those, and we'll get into some of that this morning. But uh, as I was bouncing this sermon off of my wife and others during this past week, I got about two or three minutes into it, and I could see their eyes begin to glaze over, and they just weren't following. So what I've done today, and what I hope is good, is that we're going to just focus primarily on what the Word of God says. We're going to start out with an a priori assumption that God has got this laid out for us, and then we're not going to go into the what ifs too much. However, as we do that, we want to uh, challenge ourselves to have an understanding of what it means to us and what it means to others. So we're going to look at hell, and the first thing that I want you to consider is what if there really isn't a hell? Uh, isn't that a better universe? Isn't that a better cosmology than the, the traditional Christian idea of hell? Well, let's just lay this out. If there is no hell, this means several things for us. It means that life's choices uh, no longer matter. It doesn't matter if you choose good or bad, up or down, left or right, because we're all going to wind up at the same place. Uh, it doesn't really have any impact on us whatsoever. So for us to champion morality and to say that this is a good decision to make based upon our cultural ideology or this is a great decision to make because it's, uh, we don't want this to happen to us, it really does not have any internal, eternal uh, impact or significance to us. So life's choices really don't matter. Secondly, that means that there would be no free will. Part of what we're talking about this morning is that when God created us, it was within his design of his created order that we as human beings have free choice. Uh, he did not determine that we would be in relationship with him. He wanted to create beings, human beings, that would have the ability to either say, yes, I want to be in a loving relationship with my creator or not. But if God didn't give us that option, if hell does not exist, then free choice isn't there. Uh, there is no downside. Everybody would just go to heaven. I remember sharing the gospel with my mom when I first became a believer. I said to my mom, you got to understand this. And she says, well, why didn't God just make it so all of us could go to heaven? And then as she thought about it a little bit longer, she said, I guess that would mean that we were just all robots. So God designed within his creation for us to have free choice. But if hell doesn't exist, then free choice doesn't exist. Thirdly, there would be no absolute morality. We wouldn't have any basis upon which to make ethical decisions. Uh, it would not make any sense to say that what you chose to do against me uh, was wrong because it doesn't matter. There is no judgment. I, I like that guy at the end where he said, or in the middle of the video, where he says, first I'll be cremated and then I'm going to smell dirt. The end. Well, that's not the end. And somehow, in a, in a weird way, that kind of gives comfort to people to think that life will be snuffed out that this is the end, this existence that we have. It's kind of like, well, I'm willing to deal with the consequences of my decisions in this lifetime, but don't burden me with the consequences of those decisions in the next lifetime. So there would be no need for absolute morality. And lastly, and this is the uh, most difficult thing, if there isn't a hell, then there's no need for Jesus as a savior. Think of the very definition of that term, savior. Uh, Jesus came to rescue us from something that he did not want us to experience from the consequences of the free choice that we make. He did not want us to have to go to hell. But if you take away hell, if hell, you like all of Christianity, but you're going to trip over that particular doctrine, then really what's the point of the crucifixion? What's the point of the resurrection? 
If there is no hell, then we have nothing to worry about. There is no need for a savior. So there are several problems with this concept of hell, at least as far as eliminating it. It is part of the word of God. It is strongly taught in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in particular by Jesus himself. As a people of God, we do not have the option to just ignore this doctrine. It is there, and it's in our face. And as a community at large, it's something, a truth that we have to deal with. Well, what exactly is hell? Let's take a few uh, seconds to look at how the Word of God defines it. Uh, as I run through this, the verses will be on the board behind me here, but uh, first of all, hell is described as being a place of darkness. In Matthew 8, 11, uh, that is its description. Uh, it is a place without light. And we're familiar with the fact that Jesus says, I am light, but the absence of God is darkness. So hell is a darkness. Secondly, it's a fire. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, I think you're bold to say chapter 19, so you want to make that correction and do so. But Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus is telling them to avoid hell at all costs. You know, if you have something in you that is causing you to perpetually sin, get rid of it. If your right hand is causing you to sin, chop it off. If your right eye is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Now, I got rid of my right eye when I was about eight through an accident, so I'm being in obedience to God. I'm wondering about the rest of you out there. Uh, we'll be taking care of that in the back after the sermon, if you wish. So, yeah, but it's not a place you want to go. I mean, to think about that just for a second. It, it, do away with parts of you so that you can avoid the consequences of this place. Uh, it's a place of fire. It's a place of torment. It's a place of the worm. Uh, the Word of God tells us that too. It's a, the a concept of a body moldering in the grave, the worms crawling through the, the decomposition of tissue and so forth. But in, that, in this case, it's a worm that never dies, and you are conscious of it. Fourthly, it's a place of torment. The book of Revelation chapter 14 tells us this. It is a place where there is eternal uh, anguish. Uh, the fire never stops burning. It is a place that has no pleasure in it whatsoever. There is no joy there. This is pure unadulterated, never-ending torment. And lastly, and this is a powerful verse in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. Now I'm going to turn there. Excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Um, we get the idea that hell is really a separation from God. And I'm going to read this here. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his angels. We can just read that verse and think, well, okay, but think about that. Let that impact and sink into you. Everything that is of God, the goodness, the love, the mercy, all those things that define him and that is reflected in his creation in the way that you and I deal with each other and in the possibility of goodness that we see in our community in the way that human beings can act towards one another. If that is all taken away, then there is the lack of all of that. It is away from God, and that is maybe perhaps the worst part of this. Now, many biblical scholars will take these descriptions of hell that are given in the Bible, and they say, well, really, they are metaphors, and that is a strong possibility. In fact, it's probably true. They are metaphors. Uh, somehow, we get in our minds that heaven is up, hell is down, that somewhere in the core of this earth, you know, that's the traditional picture, that there is a cavernous realm in which Satan and his demons are there to just inflict pain upon everyone that comes in. There's a lot of folk theology that actually gets taught to us in American culture that has nothing to do with the Word of God. We see little demons in red coats and horns and pitchforks and, 
you know, the torment, and whether it's a humorous one, like we see sometimes in, in comics or so, or if it's a very serious one, like in medieval paintings of naked people being dropped into the open jaws of monsters. However we picture it, when we get to the truth of it, here, here it is. The Word of God says this place not to go. If it is a metaphor, we should understand this, that any time that Scripture uses metaphors to describe reality, that the reality is actually far more intense than the picture or the figure of speech that is designed to describe it. So somehow taking comfort in the fact that this might be a metaphor, that there really isn't a fire, there isn't a worm, and so forth, well, that should not bring any comfort to us because the reality of it is far worse. So what it's not. If that's what hell is, what isn't it? And we get some really uh, strange ideas about it. Where man is constantly on a mission to replace this doctrine of hell with something that's a little bit more palatable, in, such as it's not soul sleep. It's not annihilationism. It's not like that man said, you just wink out of existence. That cannot be. God created us, just like Doug pointed out last week, to be in existence forever. When God created Adam and Eve on this earth, it was not so that they might die. It was so that they might live forever. We see this in the very fact that they're not allowed to eat of the fruit of the tree of life because God did not want to see them permanently in that state of sin after they took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So annihilationism isn't even on the board. It's not purgatory. The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, uh, it makes logical sense. Uh, it's something that has been pushed forth. It's not necessarily scriptural. But I, I can see it. But it, it's not a replacement for hell, no matter how you see it. Purgatory is designed to be a period of purification, a time in which somebody who was caught unawares of their impending demise, they didn't know they were going to die, uh, they are given that opportunity to make things right with God. Um, there are contrasts between purgatory and hell, even in its essential doctrine. Even if you buy it or not, uh, purgatory is a place of purification. Hell is a place of eternal torment. Uh, purgatory has angels working in it to bring you to a point of completion. Hell is a place where you'll be there in fellowship with, this, with Satan and his demons. But pur purgatory is temporal. Hell is eternal. So you can see that it's not a replacement for this doctrine. It's not something that should bring us comfort. Purgatory is only for those people of God uh, in the Roman Catholic system. Hell is for anyone that rejects God's grace. It's also not a second chance opportunity. This life is all there is. The Bible makes that really clear. Uh, you live one life, whether it's short, whether it's long, whether you have uh, joy or you have pain or a mixture thereof, it doesn't really matter. You have this opportunity now. In the face of this doctrine of hell, life is always lived in the present. Life is imminently in danger of ending for each of us. We have no guarantee that when we leave this place or whatever we're doing, that we're going to see the next second, the next minute, the next year. We have to deal with eternal issues at this point, and hell is a catalyst for us to do that because there is no second chance. Now, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, uh, this Oxford scholar, he gives us the opportunity to think, what would it be like if there really was a second opportunity to make things right with God? And he starts with a bus leaving hell, which is really in his vision just a crack in the soil of heaven, uh, coming into heaven. And the busload of people have that opportunity to rethink and make the right choices. But I think is somewhat true. Uh, people, even if given that opportunity, still would not choose God. They made that choice while they were alive in this world. They resisted his grace, even though it was so obviously placed in front of him. 
And yet, they're not going to do a different thing by once they see the truth of the reality after this life. So there's no second chance. It's also not universalism. There are Christian universalists and there are non-Christian universalists, but basically they say all the same thing. That it doesn't matter what we do and how we live, uh, we're all going to wind up in the same place. And that's based largely on a misconception of who God is. Uh, God views us as, um, you know, children who have done a lot of bad things. And therefore, however he works that out in his mind and in his heart, he wouldn't dare put us in a place like hell. Uh, that's the Christian point of view. The non-Christian just doesn't care, doesn't bring God even into the question, but just says whatever it is, if there is something out there, as you heard the one man say, my uh, energies will dissolve and because of the principles of attraction will go into light and so forth, and maybe I'll be a part of a greater experience, greater being, uh, whatever that may be. But we have really nothing in the Word of God that points in that direction. So for simply looking at what the Word of God says, hell is a place that we want to avoid at all costs. We want everyone that we know and love to avoid hell at all costs. We want the free gift of heaven. And no uh, partial doctrine, no other thought pattern is going to replace that. It is what it is from the Word of God. So why did God create hell? Who goes there? Well, we know for uh, what Jesus says from Matthew chapter 25 that hell was created for Satan and his angels. The word of God would have us to believe that before time there was a rebellion against God himself. He created the angels to be his servants, to be his messengers, to carry out his purposes and will. But yet we're told that Lucifer, one of the archangels, uh, the most beautiful of angels, made a different decision. He rebelled against God. And we're not given a lot of details, but all we know is that he wanted to be his own God. He wanted to be like Jehovah, like Elohim, and he suffered the consequences for his decision. Uh, God created hell for Satan and the third of the angels that decided to agree with Satan and rebel against God, which today we call demons. It's not for us. It was never designed for us, but here's what God says. If we choose to resist his grace, if we decide that we don't want to go his way, then we are consciously making the decision to identify with Satan, and we go to the same place that he is going to go. Um, it is a place that was not created for us, but which, if we make the wrong decision, will be our destiny nevertheless. The other thing that we know from Scripture is that no one is in hell, the real hell, at this point. Hell has yet to be populated. Uh, there will come a time at the end of uh, history when everybody will stand before Jesus and there will be the great white throne of judgment and people will be judged based upon that decision they made in this life. If you took advantage of God's free offer of salvation, you get to go to heaven. If you don't, you will be judged and cast into hell at that point. So at this point, there is no one in hell. They're in a place of torment for sure because we see that next in Luke, uh, the parable that Jesus tells in chapter 16, where you have the rich man who has been uh, enjoying life, feasting in life, taking every advantage that his wealth affords him, but ignoring the plight of the poor man. In this story that Jesus is telling us, this poor man who in this world seems to have nothing, he doesn't have health, he doesn't have wealth, he's not good looking, the dogs are licking his sores, their saliva is mixing with the pus of his infection. I mean, we're supposed to get that kind of image from this story. Uh, and then this rich man lets him die. And the fact is, is that after that point of death, the rich man is the one in torment. He was not obedient to God. 
He did not do what God had asked him to do, whereas Lazarus, in his heart, had followed God. And now their positions are flipped. Lazarus is the one enjoying the, the benefits of a relationship with the Lord, while the rich man, who had all the affordability of the pleasures of this life, now is the one in sufferance, so now the one that is in pain. So in this time period, between now and that judgment seat, there truly is going to be a, a death to paradise and a death to torment, but it's not the essential hell that is going to be remade or made at that time for the uh, place for those who have been judged. Then we could ask the question, if God is good and loving, then why would he even begin to create a place like this? It offends us in how we think of God. And we just want to say this, God is good, God is loving, and sometimes we throw in there God is just, because that justice aspect of his personality, of his goodness, uh, it, it makes us sit well with this doctrine. Well, he is a judge, and so therefore, since he believes in justice, those who have broken the law are going to be sent to hell. But I'm going to argue this morning that actually it's based upon his love that there is a hell. It's based upon God's love that there is a hell. Um, that's because we don't really, that we don't get this, is because we really don't understand how God set things up. If God, in his power as creator, sets up the universe and he had a design for us as his created beings to live a certain way, to believe a certain way, and then we instead choose a different way, something had to be done. Uh, God had to make a decision, and it's based upon his love that we have an opportunity to make that choice. God chooses to give us an opportunity to avoid hell. It really, hell comes out of the fact that God's love for us will bring us into his presence, will bring us into his heaven, but if we choose not to go that way, if we choose not to take advantage of what he is offering, then we are going to go to the place that we choose, not that he chose, but the place that we choose, which is away from God, otherwise defined as hell. You see, we're born with sin. We're born with that, that stain. Uh, the New Testament says we're born children of wrath. Uh, you don't even have to create a sin. You don't have to commit a sin in this life to be worthy of hell. The way we have to think about this is biblically. Even that beautiful little baby that is born, all cut, cute and cuddly, uh, clean and all that kind of stuff, and they give you that little baby in the, in the blanket, and oh, it's such a precious sight. That baby is destined for hell at that point. And we don't like to say that, but that's the truth of Scripture. Because of the original sin, we are in the identity of the fatherhood of Adam. Adam and Eve in that garden made that original decision, and we are plagued with that from on. However, we do have an opportunity to make a different choice. We don't have to go there. When we think of God as our creator, a thing that gets missed in that is that God is also our sustainer. He continually sustains us. Yeah, he doesn't just create us and say, okay, you have a heart that pumps, you have lungs that respire, you have a brain that allows for cognate function, and therefore your free agents go off and do what you will. God sustains us. He continually keeps us because the fact is that immediately we would be in deserving of hell. The Puritans had a tremendous grasp of this concept. Jonathan Edwards talks about the fact that with every step we walk, we're walking over planks, very loose planks, that could at any moment plunge us into hell. That's the reality of the situation. Think about it this way. You're, you have to appear before a judge. You, you've done something that is wrong. Uh, you, by the way, I said you don't even have to commit a sin in order to be uh, worthy of hell. But the fact is, we've all sinned, even if we leave that off the table. 
I don't think there's anybody in their right mind that say, I have violated the word of God. When every once in a while, when I talk to somebody who resists that and says, well, Dave, I didn't really ever sin. What they really mean is that I didn't do a gross sin. I didn't kill somebody. I didn't sleep with another man's wife. I didn't do anything that was worthy of note. In fact, I think that I've done enough good that if it was put on a scale, my good would outweigh my bad. Therefore, they kind of, you know, counter each other out and it's kind of even and therefore I haven't sinned. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says it doesn't have to be that kind of a sin. It could be disobedience to parents. It could be a lie, a little white lie. It can be anything that goes against God. Even to act without faith, according to Romans, is to act in sin. We sin continuously, even those of us who know God, even those of us who call ourselves Christians, we sin continuously. Atonement is necessary. So back to our story. We're standing before God. We are guilty of whatever it is that we're being accused of. God sits in judgment over us. And he would be within his rights, without explanation, to cast us into hell, to let us go to that place that we choose. Because within that, God is saying, you had a free choice. Even if you deserved hell, it wasn't predetermined that you'd go to hell. In this life, despite what you deserve as the defendant, I am going to give you the opportunity to make a right choice. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a right choice. And it's up to you. Because you see, hell is just this. Hell is allow, God allowing us to continue on with the choice that we make. We refuse to go his way, so we're going to go our way. So God the judge is sitting there. You're standing before him. And in everything that has been brought forth as evidence, you don't have a leg to stand on. You deserve hell. God is right. God is loving. God is good in letting you go with the decision that you've made. However, God decided since that should not just be the only choice, that's not the only consequence, his love breaks through. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whosoever chooses to believe in him should what? Have eternal life. And we're going to get into that next week when we talk about heaven. But as defendants, we stand before God, and here's the deal. We cannot argue with God and say, well, God, I've done this well, and I've done that well, and this is the thing that I've tried, and man, it just seems so unjust to me that you would throw me into hell or anyone else that I know into hell. That just is a beyond your character. That is in opposition to who you are. You see, we don't get to make that judgment. That's not our call. God is the creator. It's God's rules. It's God's way of thinking through things. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, my wife and I have three daughters. It was our choice to have children. Um, sometime before 1990, when my first daughter was born, we actually had a conversation like this, but we talked about what does it mean to bring children into this world? And we understood the possibility that they may not appreciate our values. They may not want to live the way that we live. They may not adopt our spiritual convictions. Uh, they may, in fact, not only do that, but they may actually live a life of grievous sin. They may do things that are so against God's word. They, they could have gone into prostitution. They could have murdered somebody. Uh, they could, in every way, spit in the face of God. And so we had a choice to make. Well, yeah, is it worth bringing kids into this world? Do we really want to give uh, a free being that opportunity to make that decision? To be a foster? To live by the rules of my house? to go by the way I have set it up or not. And we obviously made the choice it was worth it. Now, I praise God. My daughters decided to adopt our values, to 
make an individual relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior. They chose to do those things, but they didn't have to. Um, I set the parameters. I dictated the tenor of the house. My wife and I are the ones that said, this is what it means to be identified as a person in our family. But they didn't have to do that. They chose to do that. In the same way, God gives you that opportunity. Gives all of us that opportunity. It's his rules. It's his world. And he doesn't necessarily, as a matter of fact, I can tell you, he doesn't want any of us to go to hell. But by his dictates, by his court, by his judgment, if you are pretty determined and set to do that, that is your choice. And he won't stand in the way of it. Hell, there has to be a place for you to go. That's not heaven. And that is hell. So if God's loving and he created a place like hell, what does that mean for us? Well, as I said earlier, we're born in sin. We commit sin, so there's no argument on our part. God creates. He sustains us. There's a reason for that incarnation on the cross. And that's what I was alluding to earlier. Because we can't do anything to affect our own salvation, God had to do something outside of us to bring that in. If we're born, even as a young infant, to deserve hell, even without committing sin, just just because of original sin, but none of us would argue that we haven't sinned in addition to that, then there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves that would determine God to pronounce us innocent or righteous or undeserving of punishment. So something outside of ourselves had to break in to reality and create a possible path that would be salvation. And that's exactly what the incarnation did. When Jesus came to this world, he walked among us, he, he lived his life among us, and then he died among us. He took your penalty, my penalty. He took what we deserve upon himself. He suffered as God, as an innocent person, as a righteous person. He suffered for our sins. One who did not know original sin, one who never committed a sin, he took upon himself all of our sin and willfully took that judgment, willfully had those nails hammered into his wrists and to his feet and that sword thrust into his side. He willfully went to hell for us. And now we have the audacity, some of us, to stand before God and say, no, I'm going to find my own way. Thank you very much. Nope, nope. That's not, that's the, the whole doctrine that I might deserve that is so repugnant to me. God the judge will say, fine. That's your decision. That's your choice. We're not comfortable with those consequences, are we? Think about it. We live in an entire society in which consequences are not valued. I mean, whether we're telling a little white lie, you know, well, I didn't want to say something because you just put me on the spot all of a sudden. I didn't know what else to say. I didn't mean to lie, but, you know, I, I didn't want to offend Aunt Charlene by telling her her cooking was horrible. I, I didn't want to really answer my wife and when she asked me, does this dress make me look fat? I can't, I can't do that. You know, I'm, I guess I'm guilty of a fib. And we think, well, that's justified. But we even don't like the consequences when we get into the more heinous things, such as mass murder and all the things that happen in the concentration camps and around the world and all those kind of things. We think, well, boy, you know, those guys wouldn't have murdered five people if their family had been right, if their parents had showed them love, if the environment had been different. But this is the point. Yeah, it would have. You would have too. There's not much that keeps us from those baser instincts. There's nothing that prevents us from living out the natural evil inclinations of our heart. We're deserved of that, and there are consequences for it because that's the universe that God set up. The Creator gives us the ability to choose. He provides an escape from those consequences if we want to take a different route. 
He loves us so much that he chose to take those consequences of sin upon himself. The question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, so what? For those of you who are already believers in Christ, this should be one of the greatest impetus, the greatest catalyst to getting us up off our couches, away from what we usually do that is pleasurable, to thinking about living a life that is really focused upon me and my pleasure and the way things are going to wind up in my life and think about what I can do to sacrifice, to give, to suffer so that others may hear the truth, the life-changing truth of Jesus Christ. That is the missional objective that we have. We live our lives, if for no other reason, in God's sight so that we can tell as many people as possible the truth that we are hearing this morning. We don't want anyone to go to hell. God doesn't want anyone to hell. go to hell. He wants us all in heaven, but they cannot hear unless we speak. Uh, you see this in Scripture over and over again. Who will stand in the gap for me? These young people going to uh, Palestine and sharing the gospel, all that they're sacrificing is worth it in God's economy, in God's mind. Oh, how would our lives change if we really believed this? How would our priorities be redesigned and reshaped if we believed this? Secondly, there's a possibility that there are those of you sitting here this morning that don't know for sure that you've never really taken advantage of God's free offer of salvation, that hell is a very real possibility for you. And it would be remiss of me to end this time this morning without giving you that opportunity to, to make that decision. I've already alluded it all through my sermon here, but I will just say this. It's a free gift. It's a free offer. God loves us so much. God loves us so much that he wants us all to be in eternity with him on the right side of that choice. If our choice that we make consigns us to hell if we resist God, oh man, the grace and the love and the power that is open to us if we make that other choice. Next week we're going to talk about heaven and the glories that are there and, the, and just the presence of God. How can we resist that? And yet some of us do. So I just want to say to you this morning, if you've been confused on this and you don't really know what it means to be a believer, just do this. Just pray along with me right now, if you don't mind, will you? Okay, we're going to just give ourselves to God. And it's not the words that I'm speaking. There's not a magic formula that happens. It's, it's purely an act of faith. You're basically saying, and God, I admit this, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to make those sins right before you. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough good things to make it so that you will accept me just the way I am. I deserve hell. My sins are numerous. I can't do anything about it. Secondly, we want to say to God, God, I accept the fact that your son Jesus Christ came and died for me. Since I can't do anything about it for myself, I'm going to opt to choose to respond to your love and take your way which is the only way, according to the word of God. And I ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I want him to save me. I want him to rescue me. I want all that you offer me. Because my life in and of itself, the way it is, it's not good. It's not what you desire for me. God, I want all that you have for me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. And Father, I give you my life. My life is now hidden in you. I want to be your person. And I don't know what all that means at this point, but I'm trusting you. I'm believing in you. Father, I pray that for those who prayed this prayer this morning, this would be confirmed in their hearts 
and that they would have the courage to come and seek us out and talk to us after this service because we want to get them started on that wonderful new life. I just want to encourage you guys this morning that as you think about this doctrine, that just as I have in one of your quotes in your bulletin there, that it's, it's time that we as Christians stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to God, as Francis Chan says. We have a powerful doctrine. It can't be ignored. It may be difficult to grasp, but we can't just leave it there where it is. We have to go out there and proclaim it to a world that is lost. It has been for 1,800 years of church history, the cardinal doctrine, I believe, uh, alongside of the love of Jesus Christ that has propelled the movement of mission and the movement of missional living. Uh, it should be that thing that we are uh, holding on to, and this is the way I would think of it. I don't need to proclaim hell to the people that I'm sharing my faith with on the first meeting, on the second meeting, on the third meeting, necessarily. But it should be that almost silent doctrine I keep in my heart that I know the reality of this, and I know the reality for you and for those that I love. C.S. Lewis says this, that all this talk about hell should not focus on the possible damnation of our friends and of our enemies, but it should focus, in fact, upon you and me as individuals. It cannot be that we can do everything corporately to save everyone, but what we can do is affect those people that God has brought into our area of life, our family, our friends, the people we work with, everyone. If they knew the truth of this, they would want to know what you're going to do about it, what God has done about it. That is the burden that we carry. That should be the focus of our life. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. It is a difficult concept, Father, this concept of hell. But Lord, we know that it is what impels us a lot of times. It's what uh, pushes us to proclaim the love that you have, the, 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 the truth of the cross that Jesus did for us. And as we embrace your salvation, as we embrace standing before you as a judge and taking that optional route, Father, we thank you. We praise you. All glory goes to you. God, we can do nothing in our own power, but we rely humbly, totally upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.